We're going to start in Psalm 144, but before we do, we're going to pray. Would you join me? God, thank you so much for tonight, and thank you always for your word. Lord, we know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing, Lord, by your word. And so we pray tonight that you would speak to us afresh. Lord, just reveal your will and your plan for us, Lord. We, we need to hear from you. We're so tired, Lord, of the opinions of man, the opinions of this world. After a while, Lord, we realize this world has really nothing to say to us of value. Lord, we need to hear from you, and we thank you that we have your word, and we ask, Lord, you'll speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, a great fireworks demonstration always ends with a grand finale. It climaxes with a flurry of sparkles and bursts and streamers, and this is how I view this last section of the book of Psalms. Psalm 144 through 150 is like a late-inning rally to win the game. It's like the mountain climbers' last surge up the summit. These final psalms are the symphony's crescendo. Here's a fireworks demonstration of praise. Psalm 144 is General David's battle plan. You see, foreigners have invaded the land. And the king is calling on God to intervene to save his people. In fact... His only strategy is to lean on God. Verse 1 of Psalm 144. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Notice this. God is not a conscientious objector. I mean, here he's depicted as a military instructor who teaches the art of war. You know, there are times in history when God has actually sanctioned war. Destruction and killing are not always evil. God never advocates a strict nonviolence. As a matter of fact, in the last days, if you read Revelation 19, Jesus will return and he will fight the armies of this earth with drawn sword. The Lord of glory is not afraid of the goriness of war. He executes justice. Jesus is a pacifist, but only after he kills all his enemies and throws them into hell. That's when he brings peace on earth. Hey, I believe that God is a dove at heart. He wants peace. In fact, he's done all he can to make a way for peace with man. But God is a hawk when need be. When the wicked rebel, he's not afraid to use force to put down the uprising. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. But there are times when blessed are the warriors who are willing to fight for what's right. Now in verse 2, David refers to God as my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield, and the one in whom I take refuge. These are all images from the battlefield. God has taught David to fight. And it was God that was his refuge that David would flee to in the midst of the battle. It's sort of interesting. God teaches David how to swing a sword, and when he misses, God is the one he runs to for help. He's his shield. He's his sword and his shield. He says, who subdues my people under me? Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Wow. Our life on earth is like a puff of warm breath on a frosty morning. Here today, gone tomorrow. And you know, nothing makes us more aware of our mortality 
than, than battle. A soldier on the battlefield, he knows how fleeting life can be. Verse 5, bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. You know, perhaps David is recalling how God appeared at Mount Sinai. Remember when he appeared to Moses and the Israelites, his glory was visible. The mountains smoked. Lightning flashed. David now needs God to act again in a visible, tangible way. He says, stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks vain words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. And then he says, I will sing a new song to you, O Lord. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you, the one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David, his servant, from the deadly sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style, that our barns may be full supplying all kinds of produce, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields, that our oxen may be well laden, that there be no breaking in or going out, that there be no outcry in our streets. For the sake of David and his princes and his princesses and his people and their prosperity, he asked God to help him conquer these invaders. David desires victory, not for plunder, not for selfish gain, but for peace and prosperity among his people. He says, happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. And in my opinion, this verse should be inscribed in the halls of Congress and in the chambers of the Supreme Court. It should be hung in the Oval Office, in the highest office of our land. We should display these words in every school and in every post office and in every courthouse and in every community center. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Well, Psalm 145 is the last of the Psalms that's ascribed to David. And it's interesting, it's an acrostic. If we were reading it in the Hebrew, we would notice that each verse begins with a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You know, there was a Jewish rabbi who said of Psalm 144, He who could pray this psalm from the heart three times daily was preparing himself best for the praise of the world to come. You know, in Scripture, whenever we get a glimpse of the heavenly scene, we always find God's throne engulfed in praise and in worship. You know, of all heaven's inhabitants, they, they always are preoccupied with praise. Did you know that praise is our eternal occupation? That when we get to heaven, this is going to be one of our chief activities. We're going to be praising and worshiping God. That's why we need to learn how to praise God now. In Psalm 144, and actually these last final five psalms, instruct us specifically on how to praise the Lord. We're going to spend the rest of tonight sort of honing up for heaven. How's that? Verse 1. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. To extol means to lift up, to raise, to elevate, to exalt. 
You see, to praise is to raise. Praise casts a spotlight on God. It elevates Him in our eyes and in our thoughts. It centers our concentration on God. My, this world that we live in has so many distractions. And if we live in this world, and if we only expose ourselves to the things of this world, God becomes an afterthought in our minds. It's sad. This is why we need to praise God. Because we raise Him back to His proper place. We put Him back on the pedestal, back where He belongs, in our minds and in our hearts. This is why praise is so important. It raises God back up in our minds and in our, in our attention. He says, every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Notice David intends for his praise to be every day and everlasting. Every day and everlasting. He desires to praise God forever, but he knows that forever begins today. That's where our praise needs to be, every day and everlasting. And then he says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. My, before the first angel rustled his wings, before the first star twinkled in the sky, before the first brook babbled up from its source, before the dawning of time, there was God, holy and glorious and in need of nothing. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And notice, and his greatness is unsearchable. You see, it's not the result of our inquiring minds that we've come to know God. It's the result of His grace. He's chosen to reveal Himself to us, to reveal things to us that we would never be able to search out on our own. You know, once I was in Jerusalem, and I was at the Wailing Wall, and I saw a man reading the Torah scrolls with a veil over his face. I saw another man who was actually reading his Bible with one eye covered. Both of these Jewish men were admitting how inadequate they are in understanding the thoughts of God. They were reading under a veil or with a patch on their eye. And it reminds me of 2 Corinthians 3. For we're told that in a spiritual sense, the Jews read the word of God, Paul says, through a veil. A partial blindness and bias has come upon them. But when we, through the Holy Spirit, approach God's word, that veil is lifted. And we see God's glory face to face. We have an incredible privilege that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And through the Spirit of God, we become free to understand the truths of God. Things that we would miss on our own, God reveals to us. He says, one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And make sure you share your admiration for God with your kids. Notice praise and gratitude are the greatest legacy that we can leave our children. One generation shall praise your works to another, he says. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. And notice here the combining of these two motives. He praises God for his glorious splendor and his wondrous works. He considers who God is, that's his splendor, And then he considers what God does, his works. Here's the subject of our praise. Who God is and what God does. He says, men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. Never tire of praising God. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. 
The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. Notice this. Slow to anger and great in mercy. Well, I'm quick to, in, to anger, I have to be honest. But I'm so glad that the Lord is slow to anger. He has such patience with us. Aren't you glad? Oh, might have been snuffed out a long time ago. Sandy's at it again. God would have snuffed me out a long time ago. But man, God is slow to anger. And, and he's rich in mercy. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. Notice, the Lord is merciful. And he's good even to his enemies. He's good to all. Have you noticed that it rains on the blasphemer's lawn just as it rains on the believer's yard? Have you noticed this? God gives breath to those, breath to those who salute him and breath to those who scoff at him. God's that good. He's good to us all. He's merciful to us. He says, all your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. One day, the Pharisees, they asked Jesus about his kingdom. They said, Lord, when will it come? Jesus spoke of when, but first he explained how it would come. He said it was already upon them, but they were looking for it in the wrong places. In Luke 17, verse 20, Jesus tells them, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. In other words, God's kingdom isn't visible or tangible or political. It's not earthly in nature. Jesus says this, For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. You see, before God's kingdom comes tangibly, it first comes spiritually. God's throne will be established in the hearts of men before it's established in the halls of political power. Right now, God's kingdom is at work in the world, but it's working incognito, undercover, under the radar, so to speak. But one day, the king will return. And when he does, he'll come visibly and physically and tangibly and politically and militarily. The Bible tells us he'll split the eastern sky and he'll touch his foot down on the Mount of Olives and the mountain there will break in two. And Jesus will enter the holy city through the eastern gate. Ezekiel 44 says he'll go in and out through that gate. He'll reign over all the world from the mountain there in Jerusalem. You know, today this gate is walled up. I think we've got to pick, there it is. Today this gate is walled up. Apparently a couple of centuries ago the Muslims read Ezekiel 44 and they knew of Messiah's return to Jerusalem and his entrance through this gate and so they decided to block it up with those bricks. Trust me, a few bricks is not going to keep Jesus out. I hope you know that. He's going to bust through that eastern gate when he returns and he is going to set up his throne on the Temple Mount, he's going to rule over all the earth. If you come to Israel with me this year, we'll go to the Temple Mount. And we'll actually stand there in the spot from where Jesus will rule the world. And you know what will happen? Your heart will leap inside. You'll get so excited to be right there in that spot where Jesus one day is going to reign. Such an exciting place to be. But remember, 
You don't have to wait to, to that day to experience the kingdom. Because why? The kingdom of God right now is within you. This same Lord who's going to reign over all the earth reigns in our hearts even as we speak. And before Jesus returns, we have a job to do. As the psalmist says, we need to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts. Notice verse 14. The Lord upholds all who fall. Isn't that a great word? The Lord upholds all who fall. And he raises up all who are bowed down. You know, whenever an acrobat falls off the trapeze, what it does is it causes him to soar higher the next time. In fact, with each fall, the acrobat gains an increased confidence. He's learning through experience that the net is going to catch him, even when he falls. And after a while, he, he no longer even worries about the falls. He approaches the trapeze with more daring. His entire concentration is on the challenge of his routine. You know, it's ironic. He worries less about falling the more he falls. And the same is true when it comes to us serving God. For when we come to God, we realize that he's always there and that he will always catch us when we fall. Therefore, we can be more daring in our service. We can branch out. We can stretch out. We can shake out the fear of failure. We can put more effort in our service. You know, the more we fall, the less likely we are to fall. Isn't that kind of ironic? We're now more focused on the stretching and the reaching and the soaring and being what God wants us to be. He's there to catch us when we fall. He says, the eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in due season. Notice this. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Notice this, the hands of Jesus are open to all his creation. Isn't that great? God isn't tight-fisted with any of us. His hands aren't closed to us. His hands are open. He's generous. His hands are open to us all. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear the cry, their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. Now these long, this long stream of psalms, there are 150 psalms, and this long stream of psalms is like a meandering river. The believer, you and I, who wants to know God, we navigate these psalms. It's like navigating the waters of a river for mile after mile, 150 of these psalms. And as we paddle along, there's always a diverse landscape around us. We, we're, we're floating through joys and sorrows, through love and through hate, through fear and through faith, through loyalty and through betrayal. Some of the psalms are about pleasure. Some of the psalms are about pain. Some are about glory. Some are about grief. Through satisfaction, through frustration, we're just floating along this river of the Psalms. But as the river of Psalms begins to reach its end, like most rivers, the banks begin to narrow. And the river itself gains power. And it starts to grow in intensity. And the waters of emotion start to boil. And like a wild river, that falls steeper and steeper and gets narrower and narrower down through the ravine. 
all of the passion and all of the pathos expressed in these psalms begins to flow together in these last five chapters and becomes a waterfall of praise. You see, all of life's journeys eventually culminate in the praise of God. For praise is the purpose for which you and I were created. It's where all life is headed. All back to the praise of God. You know, each of these last five chapters begins and ends with the word, hallelujah. You know what that means? It means praise the Lord. Hallel, praise Yah, Yehovah, praise the Lord. We call Psalm 146 through 150 the hallelujah psalms. And by the way, hallelujah is the universal word. You go anywhere in the world, and it's spoken the same, it's understood the same, the word hallelujah, it's in every language. Now in the Psalms, these final five hallelujahs are going to call all creation to join in the praises of the Almighty God. You know, some scholars believe these hallelujah Psalms were written by Haggai and Zechariah and were used in the dedication of the second temple that was rebuilt after the Babylonians had destroyed the first temple. Other commentators believe that they were written in the days of Nehemiah. You remember, he was the great wall builder. He built the walls around the city of Jerusalem, and they were sung at the dedication. We're not quite sure when they were actually composed. Psalm 146 begins with a double hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hey, praise the Lord, oh my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Listen to verse 2 in the Living Bible. I like this translation. It says, I will praise Him as long as I live, yes, even with my dying breath. The psalmist desires to praise God for the rest of his life. And then when he dies, he hopes the praise of God is the final words that fall from his lips. He obviously understands the reason he exists is to praise the Lord. He says, do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Now, we've talked about this the last few weeks. But here's what happens when a person dies. His spirit leaves his body to reside in either heaven or in hell. His body, though, returns to the dust to wait on the resurrection. But here's the point of the psalmist here. He's out of commission on earth. And therefore, trust in any man who's dead is vain trust. It, it, it's worthless. Men die. That's why they're, they're untrustworthy. If these psalms were written by the founders of the second temple, they might have been thinking of a mistake made by King Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the last of the Judean kings to rule over Jerusalem before the city fell to the Babylonians. And in the days prior to its fall, Zedekiah had hoped that the Egyptians from down south would come up to Jerusalem and would defend the city. In fact, he had sent envoys. He had courted their help. He had tried to bribe them. The problem, though, is that the Egyptians never showed up. In fact, in Lamentations, Jeremiah said that even as the Babylonians were breaching the walls and were pouring into the city, some of the Jews still had faith that Egypt would come riding in like the cavalry and save them. 
In fact, Jeremiah said in Lamentations 4 verse 17, he says, Still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save us. It was a hard lesson to learn. But it's a lesson we all need to learn. And that is that we can never trust in man. Our trust needs to be in the Lord. In contrast, verse 5 tells us, Happy is he who has made the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. And isn't that true? Boy, how God can turn the tables on you in a hurry. Talk about turning a life topsy-turvy. God helps the innocent and the hopeless and the underdog. But boy, he can put down the proud in no time. He can cause the haughty man to bow low. He can turn the tables on the wicked in a heartbeat. Verse 10 tells us, The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Or, hallelujah. Well, Psalm 147 begins, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is beautiful. Our praise is a pleasant sound in the ears of God. Hey, even my praise is beautiful to God's ears. He loves it when we praise Him. You know, A.W. Tozer once made an interesting observation. He said this. He said, We're here to be worshipers first and workers only second. We take a convert and immediately make a worker out of him. God never meant it to be so. This is, this is the way a lot of Christians think, a lot of churches think. It's almost as if a Christian who simply sits and worships the Lord and just sits before the Lord and just praises God. We look at that as if they're wasting time. Man, you ought to be out serving. You ought to be out doing. You ought to be out sharing your faith. Don't you know that people are going to hell and the Lord is coming soon? What are you doing just sitting in the sanctuary worshiping God? We draw this conclusion because we fail to recognize the importance of true praise. You know, you can't serve God properly and persistently until you first realize His greatness and His worthiness to be served. You see, in truth, praise is the foundation of effective service. All work and no worship causes us to lose perspective in a hurry. Never forget that we were made to be worshipers first and workers second. He says in verse 2, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. Ultimately, it wasn't Nehemiah who built the walls of Jerusalem. It was God. It was the Lord who built up Jerusalem. The Lord was the superintendent of the work. Notice this. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Isn't that beautiful? Well, we all come tonight with, with a broken heart to some extent, don't we? We all come with our wounds. You can't, you can't live in this world without getting dented and getting nicked up some. 
It's a rough world we live in. But notice the Lord heals the brokenhearted. The Lord is good. He, he binds up their wounds. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls, but God had lives to rebuild as well. After 70 years of captivity, the Jews who returned to Jerusalem, they were brokenhearted. They were shattered. God had regathered them to his city to mend their wounds. You know, Jerusalem means city of peace. God wanted his troubled people to be at peace. Notice this. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. And notice the implication. If God names the distant stars, how much more does he care about you and me? You know, the names of the constellations are all ancient. People wonder, where did the stars get their names? Well, here we're told, God named the stars. You remember back in Genesis, naming was a sign of dominion. You know, you don't name what doesn't belong to you. I mean, you don't walk over into my yard and name my dog. Doesn't work that way. You don't come over and name my kids. Rowdy, out of control. No, you don't name my kids. You know, I named my kids. I named my dog. Why? Because they belong to me. God named the stars. Why? Because they belong to Him. All the universe belongs to God. Literally, our whole universe is God's backyard. It's His possession. And the universe, by the way, is quite a yard. Did you know that if the Milky Way galaxy, our, our tiny little galaxy, if just our galaxy was the size of the North American continent, that would mean that our solar system would fit into a coffee cup. If the Milky Way was the size of North America, our solar system would fit into a coffee cup. Did you know that right now there are two Voyager spacecrafts? They're hurtling through space. They're about to the edge of the solar system. They travel at a rate of 100,000 miles per hour. Since 1977, when they were launched, three decades ago, they've been speeding away from planet Earth. They are now 9 billion miles from home. And they haven't even reached the brim of the coffee cup. That's how big a universe we live in. And the Milky Way galaxy is just one of several hundred billion galaxies. That's what I'm telling you. Our universe is a really big backyard. And it all belongs to God. Great is our Lord. That's an understatement when you say. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth. I like this one. Who makes grass to grow on the mountains. You know, every time you drive down Highway 78 and you go past Stone Mountain and you, and you see those trees growing in the granite near the top of the mountain and you wonder... How's that happening? I mean, are you the, am I the only one that thinks about that? That's granite. Those trees are growing in the top of that mountain. How's that happening? Whenever you wonder that, recall Psalm 147. God makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives it to the beast. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. He, he does not delight in the strength of the horse. Hate to say that to you NASCAR fans, but... God's not impressed with horsepower. 
He takes no pleasure in the legs of man. Neither is he impressed with manpower. Notice, an athlete's strength is in his lower body. Have you ever noticed that? You know, athletes, they always work on their legs. That's where their strength comes from. The legs of a man are the source of his strength, and yet God is unimpressed with brute power, with manpower, or with horsepower. He says the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. He makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest wheat. And of course, the fulfillment of this psalm is obviously still future. For not until Jesus returns will there be peace in the streets of Jerusalem. Today, children who live there fear war. As a matter of fact, the police drive through East Jerusalem in vans that have metal grates that cover their windows to fend off the rocks that are thrown at them from the young Palestinians. Trust me, Jerusalem today are, are not, is not a place of peace. In fact, today it's a law that when Israeli school children go on a field trip, they have to have a chaperone accompany them with a loaded rifle by his side, with an automatic rifle. That's a pretty tough place to live. It's only when Jesus returns that the city of peace will truly be at peace. Verse 15 tells us, He sends out His command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. And you think, what in the world does Jerusalem and that part of the world know about snow? Look at the picture. It does snow on occasion in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's about... Oh, about 3,000 feet above sea level and, and gets weather much like ours today. And about as often as it snows in Atlanta, it'll snow in Jerusalem. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out his hail like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. Now notice this. In Romans 3, one of the ways the Jews are special among the nations is that God gave to them His statutes and His judgments. In other words, the Jewish people became the caretakers of the Scriptures. In Romans 3, Paul writes, What advantage then has the Jew? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. This is one of the things that make the Jews a special people. They were entrusted with the sacred scriptures. You know, the psalmist makes a similar statement here in verse 15. God declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He goes on, he has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. In other words, the scriptures, the true knowledge of God made Israel special among the nations. Now as Christians, we don't approve of everything that Israel does. The Knesset makes mistakes. And at times, Israel's treatment of the Palestinians is not what it should be. In addition, it grieves the heart of God that the Jews reject Jesus as their Messiah and that they oppose the spread of the gospel within their borders. Their policies are sending people to hell. And yet, despite their rebellion, God in His amazing mercies and in His grace, He has and He always will hold favored nation status 
with the Israelis. The Jewish state is the only country on earth that has signed covenants with God in blood and that he's agreed to bless these people forever. Well, Psalm 148 is a song of purest praise. In fact, in this psalm, you won't find a single plea or petition or prayer. There's nothing here but praise. All creation should praise the Lord. He says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him in the heights, praise Him all His angels, praise Him all His hosts. You know, angels are are glorious creatures in their own right. I mean, in the Bible, whenever a human being sees an angel, their tendency is to bow down and to worship at the creature's feet. Angels are majestic and celestial beings that inspire awe. You know, we, we've got these little pictures of angels as little, little babies running around in a diaper, you know, with little wings on their back, flipping around and all, you know. Those aren't angels. I don't know what those are, but they're not angels. When angels appear in the Scripture, they appear as mighty warriors, as battle-hardened soldiers of God. And our tendency when we see one is to want to bow down and worship him. But here, here God is instead asking the angels, telling the angels to worship him. You know, the Jews in the Old Testament, they even revered the angels to the point of near worship. Here the psalmist though says that the angels are the ones that need to shout out their praise to God. They're the ones that need to bow down before God. In verse 3, the psalmist turns from the angels and he shouts to the sky. He says, praise him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you stars of light. Praise Him, you heaven of heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded, and they were created. Boy, God created everything with the power of His word. He said, let there be, and there was. He says, He has established them forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all the depths. The whale that swallowed Jonah needs to praise the Lord. He says, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things, even the creepy things, even the creepy people, and the flying fowl need to praise the Lord. Man, the psalmist calls for the hydrosphere to praise the Lord. And then the atmosphere. And then finally the lithosphere. Both the flora and the fauna should praise the Lord. Notice who the psalmist leaves last on his roll call of praise. He's called out the angels. He's called out the sun and moon and stars. He's called out the clouds and the rain. He's called out the weather. It all should worship God. Even the animal kingdom should worship God. In verse 11, the psalmist calls on man to praise God. You know, it's been said, when God's work of creating was done, man's work of praise had just begun. The psalmist calls out, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the heaven and the earth, and he has exalted the horn of his people The praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, of people near to him, praise the Lord. Let all heaven and earth, sky and sea and land, flora and fauna, kings and peasants, old men and children, let everyone join together to praise our Lord. 
You know, Charles Spurgeon wrote, Does all nature around me praise God? If I were silent, I would be an exception to the universe. Does not thunder praise Him? Do not the mountains praise Him? Does not lightning write His name in letters of fire? Has not the whole earth a voice? And shall I, can I, be silent? All nature walks to the drumbeat drumbeat of praise. Are you in step tonight? Well, Psalm 149 begins, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and His praise in the assembly of saints. Notice again, God loves a new song. So when Marvin or Josh keep playing these new songs, sometimes I think, Marvin, I hadn't learned the last song you introduced. Now you're singing a whole new song. You know, hey, he's just being obedient to God's word. God wants us to sing a new song to the Lord. You know, new experiences with God will spawn new songs. And if you're still singing the same old hymns they sang in the 1700s, man, that means you've got a pretty dull relationship with God. Not much is happening, man. New experiences with God should spawn new songs. Just as a fresh tomato is a sign that a tomato plant is growing in the ground. Boy, I love fresh tomatoes. It's a sign that there's a tomato plant growing somewhere. A new song is a sign that God's love is growing in a heart. He says, let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. On my first two trips to Jerusalem, we attended a Jewish folklore dance at the YMCA in downtown Jerusalem. And it was absolutely fabulous. To this day, it's been one of my favorite experiences there in the Holy Land. Uh, it's sad, but they've stopped, uh, they've stopped doing the dance, at least when we go in December. And so we haven't been able to go the last few years. But it, it's really a wonderful uh, exhibition. The Jews express their worship and praise through dance. We were there one year, and Donna and Kathy and a bunch of the ladies, they all ended up down in the streets of, of Ben Yehuda Street, all dancing with the Jewish ladies down there. They were kind of going around in the circles and dancing. You should have seen my wife dancing in Jerusalem. The Jews loved to express themselves through the dance. Remember, David danced before the Lord when he brought the ark up to Jerusalem. He says, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Did you notice that none of the local TV, TV stations are here tonight covering our worship time and our Bible study? Did you notice that? When you, no TV trucks out, outside tonight? You know, apparently the world sees our praise as inconsequential. But not heaven. Heaven knows the significance of our praise and our worship. For the Lord takes pleasure when we worship Him. He says, let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. No, notice the weapons of the saints here. Look in their mouth and in their hand. Here are their weapons. The high praises of God and a two-edged sword. Here are our weapons, guys. Praise and Scripture. This is why our focus, whenever we gather together here at Calvary Chapel, this is why we always emphasize two things. Worship and the study of God's Word. 
Our times together are devoted to praise sessions and scriptural lessons. This is the preoccupation of any good church. The high praises of God in my mouth and a two-edged sword in my hand. And with the sword, the saints will execute vengeance, the psalmist says, on the nations. And punishments on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. Boy, when Jesus returns, we'll swing more than just a scriptural sword. We'll be using a real blade. And it'll be our honor to act as his agents in executing justice. The day's coming when we'll all work for the justice department. Today the saints preach the word of God with love and compassion, but in that day we'll be its enforcers. Now Psalm 150, can you believe it? We're at the last psalm. Psalm 150, the final psalm is a Niagara Falls of praise. The book closes with an avalanche of praise and worship. Remember Psalm 1? Remember how it began? Blessed is the man. In the first psalm, we had God blessing man. Now in the last psalm, Psalm 150, we have man blessing God. Here's a fitting finale to the book of Psalms. Verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. And close your eyes in the temple. Sense God's sweet presence and praise Him. Open your eyes, though, under a starry sky or in the middle of a thunderstorm. Behold God's artistic flair, His awesome power, and praise Him there as well. God reveals Himself in the sanctuary and God reveals Himself in the sky. He says, praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and harp. The trumpet was the shofar or the ram's horn. This was the horn that the Hebrews blew when they made their final trip around the walls of Jericho and they saw the walls come a-tumbling down. You remember the story? The shofar was also used by the priest at the Feast of Trumpets to call the workers out of the fields and up to the temple to worship God. Now, I brought my shofar with me tonight. Got it when I was in Israel. And, and I hate to brag, but, you know, I've become really quite good with this shofar. You know, I, it's the one musical instrument that I've mastered over the years. And I brought my shofar tonight to give you a little demonstration. There are actually four traditional Jewish sounds that are made by the shofar. The first is a, is a long blast that ends abruptly. It's called the tekia. You ready? Excuse me, catch my breath. Whoa, 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 whoa. You guys gave it away. They really thought I was blowing his show far. Josh, you, you, you gave, me, gave me away, man. Listen, okay. Well, anyway, the first is the techie. It's a long blast that has this abrupt ending. The second is the shevarim. 
It's three staccato blasts. Give us, give us that. That's great. The third is the Terua. It's nine broken blasts. And this was the alarm that sounded whenever the enemy army was approaching. It's amazing what you can find on the internet. Finally, the Takea Gadola is the one blast that increases in loudness as it, as it blasts. I mean, you're not perfect. These things are tough to play. Remember the sound of the shofar. Now, now this is very important. It's important that you, that you I hope you were listening, because it's important that you recognize the shofar blast. Because it's the sound of the shofar that you and I will hear at the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16 tells us that when Jesus returns to snatch away his church, He'll signal his coming with the sound of the shofar. We're told for the Lord himself will descend with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and what? And with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. When you hear the sound of the shofar, man, get ready for liftoff. The psalmist also says to praise God with the lute or the nibel, which was a harp. In fact, there's a cave in Megiddo that has a picture of a harp with 22 strings, an instrument with 22 strings. Apparently, the lute was very complicated. It was a tough instrument to master. He also mentions the harp, or the kinnor. This was David's favorite instrument. The kinnor looked like a guitar. It had a box for a bass, and then it had two supporting arms and a crossbar on top, and it had eight to ten strings attached. The strings were usually made from sheep intestines or from plant fiber. And the Hebrew word kinnor or harp, it means to twang. And so I kind of figured the, the harp was kind of like a banjo, you know. Kind of gave you a good old country, country feel. Verse 4, praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with string instruments and flutes. The timbrel was sort of a handheld drum. The modern Israeli equivalent was a tambor. I had a tambor. I don't know what happened to it. I was going to bring it tonight, but I couldn't find it. Sorry. have to go back to Israel. Get a tambor. He says, praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And take note there. The Hebrew word that's translated everything means everything. Let's use every instrument, everything we can get our hands on to praise the Lord. In fact, here's how I want to end our study in the Psalms. We're going to have the worship team come back up. So you guys come on back up. Keep your Bibles out. Keep them open to Psalm 150. We practiced this this afternoon for, for like three minutes. But hopefully this, this will be great. That's how we're going to end our, our study on the Psalms. We're going we're to read again Psalm 150.
And then we're, when we're done, we're going to sing together, okay? Ready, David? <laughs> I mean, Josh? You ready? Yeah. Okay. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty firmament. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute. Praise Him with the harp. Praise Him with the timbrel. Praise Him with the dance. About the best we could do. Praise Him with the stringed instruments. Okay, good. Praise Him with the flutes. Praise Him with the loud cymbals. Praise Him with the crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So I stand. With everything that, with everything that, with everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Everything that, with everything that, with everything that has breath, praise the Praise Him in the morning, praise Him in the evening, praise Him when I'm young and when I'm old. Praise Him when I'm laughing, praise Him when I'm grieving, praise Him every season of the soul. If we could see how much Your worth, Your power, Your might, Your endless love, surely we would never cease. the heavens, join them with the angels, praise them forever and praise them on the earth now, join them with creation, calling all the nations to your place. Let's see you dismissed. Great night.